Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm lovely, thank you. Yay. Yes. Um, is the is this week's episode we're talking about a particular department? Yes. And can I just give the initials of the department? They make me so happy. Yeah, go ahead. Hugh. H E W. And you know why, listeners, you have not heard of H E W? Because it doesn't exist anymore. No, it does not. But that's <clears throat> the original name of Health and Human Services, HHS, or HS, was Hugh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And I did not realize how much stuff is in this department. We, we talk regularly about how departments, people are like, oh, I don't know, put it in commerce. Oh, I don't know, put it in interior, right? Like they just sort of cram things. And this feels like a department that was crammed together. Yeah, because, um, you know, Nia, I get this a lot from students uh, because I teach, you know, classes like public administration and bureaucratic politics. And students will ask, you know, <clears throat> you know, what's the broad purpose of, you know, X department? But this one. <laughs> what's the broad purpose of of, oh my <laughs> of, of health and human services in on one hand as you just pointed out there are a lot of different agencies within this department on the other hand this is one of the easier ones to answer when i do get asked because it is the department that probably best represents the american federal government commitment to welfare to the infamous safety net, right? Okay, all right, that makes sense to me with what's in this department. Like, okay. in, 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 we don't talk about that all that much here in the States. I mean, if you go to Western European democracies, okay, you know, they compared to the United States made a commitment to providing a safety net or what's known by scholars as the welfare state much earlier than the United States. And even today, they spend more money and they make more of a commitment. And we could probably do another podcast episode of the pros and cons of that kind of commitment versus the United States. But if you look at the agencies within Health and Human Services, I mean, first of all, the the Food and Drug Administration, okay, um, uh, used to be part of the precursor to H HHS. Right? Okay, so can we are can we just say to listeners, we're not going to try to differentiate too much between Hugh and HHS. Yes, we will get to the history in just a couple moments, but for our purposes, because we basically only have roughly an hour. Um, health education and welfare begat 
Health and Human Services. Right. Department of War begat the Department of Defense, but it didn't really change purposes all that much. Okay, we reconfigured it. Maybe there are different points of emphasis, but in, in the in this particular uh, podcast episode, listeners, when education gets removed in the 1970s to become a standalone department, okay, Health and Human Services, its focus really became narrow in regards to providing a safety net, right? Right. Because you have. Uh, and it's interesting they changed human service they changed welfare to human, human services. services in yes. partly in part because welfare was not well it's had it a has negative. a reputational issue that word it has, has a, a reputational issue yeah i mean historically in the united states welfare has a negative connotation right okay you don't want to go on welfare if you're an individual okay um and uh according to many americans even today the fact that there are hard earned taxpayer dollars are being used for quote unquote welfare, uh, still, you know, burns them, you know, upsets them. Okay. Right. Although they very much like the things that come out of, Oh, sure. Of these programs. Cause the other things that you're going to mention, okay. So food and drug administration, which by the way, keeps you from dying of ingesting things that are terrible for you right because the and, fda and now, that, and now that's a standalone independent regulatory commission but the fda used to be part of it indian health service native american health service the centers for disease control and that's still part of hhs medicare and medicaid and for our younger listeners um medicare is the health insurance program uh, for the elderly for the okay. and and retired in in, in the retired right because they don't have it through their through their work work so the longer. government provides something to, to help with insurance needs like medication coverage and medical care coverage and things you know doctors visits etc right. and then a med- Medicaid which is the uh, health program uh, for the poor Social Security until 1995 was part of HHS. And we'll talk about that removal in just a few moments. The bulk of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, um, otherwise known as Obamacare, was placed in HHS. Head Start, which um, Nia and I have talked about in a previous podcast episode, um, that's the uh, uh, food and nutritional program um uh for um um uh children at school okay um uh that's part hipaa which we did an entire podcast episode on <laughs> that's right okay um but and again every one of these department episodes we do i learned something new i did not know the federal government's foster care program was part of hhs I guess that makes sense because that's the welfare of children. Yeah, the welfare. Right? That's of looking children. at looking after children who have been either removed from their homes or who have had parents die or what have you. And how do we care for those children? Wards of the state, as it were. How do you how do and you make sure that they're cared for? Maybe part of my knowledge deficit, Nia, was that historically foster care has always been provided either at 
the state level of government or by nonprofit organizations. Churches. Okay. Used to be a lot of churches took care of foster. Yeah. So took care of children who who had did not have parents parents. for whatever reason. Um, you know, yeah, I didn't know that either till I saw it on your list. I'm like, oh, well, but that makes sense when you consider the overall mission of the department is human welfare. It is how do we how do we care for the elderly and the poor and the children like what we think of as the weakest in our society yeah, in those, terms of people who can take care of themselves that's how right. do we make sure that those people are cared for because otherwise we are in an inhuman bunch of jerks who say ah old people who needs to take care of them who cares about kids right like we don't want to be those people we want to have and that's and that's a cultural tension in the united states compared to other nation states right you know, one, you know, there are... Well, we want to take care of those people, but we don't want to pay for it. Yeah. And, and, Which is and, like, um, <laughs> well, it, it, how's it, that supposed to work? And we're very individualistic in the United States, right? I mean, you know, that's that's hardwired into American political culture, right? So, but we also don't have, like, in other nation states, and, and, and I'm thinking about Japan, a, a culture of where families take care of their elderly. Right. Right. We had that up until we stopped being as agrarian and people moved into the cities. That's right. And there's less of that now. And now you need a retirement system for people who are no longer living with family members. Yes. To be cared for. So who started it? Who started which which administration is is Department of Interestingly enough, the, the first presidential administration who proposed uh this kind of department was Warren G. Harding in 1923. And again, I didn't know this, I, in part because when I think of the Harding administration, I think about all of the corruption and scandal, right? But he proposed a Department of Education and Welfare, okay? And it got absolutely no traction, okay, during <laughs> you know the Gilded Age, of the 1920s when right? people didn't need that they That's didn't need right. to be taken care of okay the next time we get a proposal um uh was a, a federal security agency which was part of a a white house reorganization during the uh, roosevelt administration uh franklin delano roosevelt administration and the purpose there was not necessarily welfare it was just to go ahead and bring together in one agency various federal government programs. Okay, remember, listeners, during the 1930s, FDR was requesting and Congress was creating a whole bunch of agencies. <laughs> yeah, like, the government it, grew like mushrooms in a field. Like boom, yes, boom, boom, right? boom, boom, boom. Okay, and they get to the end of the decade and many within Congress, but also the Roosevelt administration was just like, we might want to go ahead and organize, to use your metaphor, all of these mushrooms, right? Right. Okay. Right. Put all the similar varieties together, put them all in one part of the field. Yeah. So what they created um, was a federal security administrator, and I love his last name, Paul McNutt, right? (laughs) Okay. 
to bring together agencies concerning health, education, and social security. Okay. Right? Small, it was a very small agency, okay? Um, because all they had was uh, an administrator's office, a public health service, an office of education, the Triple C Civilian Conservation Corps, and the Social Security Board. Okay, pretty minor, all right? Interestingly enough, health, education, and welfare as a department actually occurred as part of President Eisenhower's reorganization plan number one of 1953. So this it takes 14 years for this to become a full-blown cabinet department. Okay. And by the and way, do you think that it because in part because it was growing as a like all of those sections within were getting bigger and somebody said, you know, we ought to make that a well part a cabinet of it, level department. Well, part of it was those units that I just you know mentioned, okay, all kind of sort of expanded post-World War II, right? You know, we learned a lot about public health, okay, because of how we treated wounded soldiers during the war. That okay. makes sense. Social Security, which was only supposed to exist for three years, okay, well, by the 1950s, it ex had ex existed for nearly 20 years, right? Right. People have begun to depend on it. They're yeah, just... it wasn't going anywhere, right? Right. This is the only department, Nia, in our country's history created through presidential reorganizational authority, okay? Really? Congress gave Eisenhower the authority, okay? Because he asked for it. I mean, one of the things he was noted for when he was an army general was the dude could organize and plan, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, I mean, think I about mean, it. Okay. D-Day. And right? I was going to say, is, isn't he, wasn't he responsible, him and Churchill, for D-Day, right? For D-Day, right. Okay. So, yeah, he could plan a thing. I'm yeah, just he saying. Could, <laughs> yeah, he could plan a thing, right? He gets from Congress. He's the guy you want to be your wedding event planner. Yes, right? Just saying. Okay. You know, there'd you be decide, an answer for everything. Yes, you decide to go ahead and have you know a party in your backyard, and yeah, a barbecue. Like, I need I need Eisenhower to run this barbecue. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. But I do have a question about that. Yes. Um. So DHS was not created by a president. No. Remember, uh, uh, Nia. Um, only Congress has the authority to authorize new agencies. Okay. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking that came up as an, a reorganization. Okay. No. I feel certain President Bush asked for it. Well, well we, need okay. a, we need a reorganization where we have some sort of stronger. Okay, but think, okay, but think about the, uh, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. The 9-11 attacks occurred. Right. The first thing that Bush did was he created a director, okay, a czar-like position, Tom Ridge, former governor of Pennsylvania, but he had no agency to run. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. Sorry, that's what I'm okay. thinking. I was like, wait, but there were people, I remember Ridge, and there's the other guy, oh, Michael. Shirtoff. Clark, no, Clark. 
Oh well, yeah, that's right. Okay. Right, like they. Okay, so okay. I see. Uh, he, you can create a czar, but that doesn't give it a department. That's right. So okay. until he could convince Congress to to, to give it a department, <laughs> okay, to create a department and then allocate the money. That's the you know that's the big thing, right? Right. Okay. But this is the only time because Congress gave Eisenhower this broad sweeping reorganization of the executive branch of power. And this is the only one, only cabinet department ever created by a president using reorganization authority given to the president by Congress. The only time, right? Can I say that one of the coolest things that comes out of this is the CDC and prior to the CDC or in congruent in, in in like a parallel with the CDC is the community public health program yes cuz that makes sense to me that that the that the federal government would say we need to have some sort of federal standard for public health that it can't be that that one city has great public health and another city doesn't because it's left at just the local level and well, it depends it, on state funding. It, it, and that does reflect, okay, you know, that constitutional construct known as federalism, right? Right. Okay. It's something that you talk about on a pretty regular basis, cooperative federalism. federalism. Yes, right? Because when this department was created, it, it, this is great. Okay. <laughs> I, I found this in the research and I'm like, oh, I love this stuff, right? When health education and welfare was created, one of the first programs it initiated was community public health, right? And they gave grants to cities. It wasn't like there were federal officials that came into cities and said, okay, you now need to go ahead and create these public health programs just like this. No. They gave money to cities, okay, and told them when you receive the money, we want you to use the money for these purposes. And of course, you know, cities and states aren't always keen about the conditions placed on the money, <laughs> but they want the money. Right. And, and Chicago took their public health program money and they used it for rat control. Because Chicago for decades had problems with rats. Right. It's a serious public health issue. Because rats carry all kinds of disease. Yes. Right? right? We, I mean, even though they've gotten probably, it's, it's probably incorrect that they carried bubonic plague. Yeah. But for at this time in history, people thought they did. But they also just carry normal diseases that are gross and bad for you. Like. Yes, right? I mean, these, that's one of those things that, you know, our, you know, our colleague Judy Twig talks about when human beings interact with animals, it's not always good for either party. Right. <laughs> now, what I want to, what I want to imagine, I know this is not what happened, but I want to just visualize this for just a moment with our listeners. So I would like to believe that what they did for rat control was they went out and bought a bunch of cats. The whole city was just, <laughs> you know what I mean? And little old ladies in Chicago put out food for the cats and then the cats <laughs> would chase rats. And, I'm just saying. But they also did stuff like municipal waste. Like that, 
that kind of idea of when humans all live together, we need to have we need to have good sanitary practices. Otherwise, we all end up sick, right? Like it's. And because there's frequently a lack of will by local and state politicians to raise taxes, to create programs, okay, to address these kind of collective problems. I mean, it's, it's a problem of the collective, as you just described, Nia, right? Right. Okay, you throw, you know, millions of people into, okay, uh, a small area, and it becomes densely populated, okay? Problem. And the next thing that breaks out is cholera. Yeah, you know, right? problems, problems occur, right? right. Okay, because you need to go ahead and give them clean drinking water, but keep it away from the water that's used for solid waste. Right, and the solid waste needs to have a place to go. That's right. Okay. Because otherwise, you know, you get the streets of London in the 1700s. Yes, Ugh. right? So, you know, how do you have sanitary landfills instead of just dumps? Right. Okay. <laughs> right. But my favorite is, is the radiation program under which it wrote standards on things like microwave ovens. Yes. For the first time in history, you have radiation being used as a... Uh, by households right yes. and and so you need to have standards because if you don't radiation in too much or in the wrong way is yeah, because, I mean, is extremely bad for your physical well-being i mean because you know those of us today who know microwave ovens as an essential appliance okay? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have one, but a lot of people do. Well, I mean, hey, uh, trust and me. How do you rewarm coffee for the eighth time if you okay, don't have well, a microwave? Or, or for that matter, okay, <laughs> if you have any children, right? <laughs> okay, but think about what probably happened when they first created microwave ovens, okay? You know there were some, you know, genius inventors who are like, well, we can go ahead and cook, okay, uh, a 16 ounce T-bone in this microwave in 35 seconds, and they just blasted <laughs> the heck out of it, right. okay, with, okay, an, an unhealthy <laughs> amount of radiation. Exactly. That okay. also, because you're standing in front of it, watching it, gets you, gets the steak, then you consume it, and you get more. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. just all kinds of, so we like the idea of community public health and we like it because we don't think about things like most people when they go to the restroom and they flush the toilet they don't think about where that goes, goes. or how it doesn't affect drinking water it doesn't affect groundwater it doesn't affect plants in the local area like they don't think about that because of this kind of organ of this kind of program where yeah. The government comes in and says, we're just going to take that off your plate. You don't have to think about how all of that works. It's just going to magically disappear because we're going to build systems that take it away. And then when it fails, a la Flint, and you get people who can't yeah, drink the Flint, water. Michigan. Yes. And that wasn't because of fecal matter. That was because of iron. I think it was because of the, oh, it was, the uh, tubes uh, that the water was carried in, right? Was, yeah, poor pipes. Okay. Right, they never updated uh, the the pipes that brought in drinking water. I mean, that's something that this kind of thing would address. 
Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, now, except it, now it's under the EPA, and it's under the EPA, right? Because we don't have the EPA in the 1950s. We don't correct. get the EPA until Nixon, which I think uh, again we we talk a lot about President Nixon's foibles and lo there are many right (laughs) but but he also did something like he created the epa and i'm not going to belabor this point all that much but nia you you've heard me say this in a number of of forums okay i want you to take note of the fact that we get health education and welfare under a Republican presidential administration. We get the EPA under a Republican administration. Yeah, they'd be drummed out now. Okay, yeah, listeners, do understand <laughs> that- Current Republicans would want nothing to do with some of what this-, this... Political parties evolve and change. Exactly. Right? You know, the Republican party of the 1950s, okay, and even well into the 1970s and 80s, okay, actually did believe that government could do some good things, particularly on the collective level, right? Right, right. Okay, I mean, because, you know, in part, and I've read enough about, for instance, why Nixon wanted the EPA, okay? Nixon thought that if we had an environmental protection agency that worked with business, then the costs of environmental regulations, okay, could be manageable. So the thinking was, yes, we can go ahead and clean up the environment, but we can do so in a way that would not necessarily, you know, harm or impose egregious costs on business, right? But that's, you know, a kind of thinking that today in polarized United States, where, you know, liberals would go ahead and say, you know, who cares about the costs? We need to go ahead and address, you know, climate change. And then you have conservatives who are like, well, I don't even believe climate change exists. And then there's a whole bunch of us who are like, isn't there a middle ground? Right. Okay. Can there be a place where we handle things, but we handle it moderately? I think that that it should be probably, uh, if you haven't figured this out by now, Augie and I are both probably falling into more of the moderate category of almost everything. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're sort of like, can't we just work something out here? I, you know, uh, there are a few things where I am a diehard sort of, nope, there is a line in the sand. Yes. Like, for instance, for me, Ukrainian sovereignty is a line in the sand. Yeah. No part of Ukraine should belong to Russia because Ukraine is its own country. But that's because I believe in sovereignty. And I don't think you should just go around snagging other parts. Like, because otherwise we would take the good parts of Canada and leave the rest. And the Canadians would not like that at all. And I'm kind of sort of thinking that, you know, um, you know, you just mentioned the North. I'm kind of sort of thinking, you know, there are parts of our federal government who would not necessarily mind another Mexican land grab. I mean, right. I right. mean we, we did it once in the 19th century. <laughs> I 
mean? Okay. And so not not so much with that, like hard lines, but for the most lot, most part, I also think that a lot of things can be negotiated. Sure. Um, right? And and I think they should be negotiated. I think we should be more moderate, and we should not. It it should not be nearly as polarized as it is. However, that is an aside. That has nothing to do with the fact that. I would imagine that this department exploded under the Great LB Society. Oh, yes. Uh, right, because LBJ's whole point of view was we need to not have poor people. We need to not have uneducated people. Like everybody in the United States has the right to, to a decent education, to I, decent I, living conditions. I, I've listened to the audio of a speech that he gave, okay? to the United States Congress where uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson spent five minutes talking about running water and indoor plumbing. Right, because the part of Texas that he came from was yes. extraordinarily poor and he was a principal in a very, very poor school. Yes. So, and, and he wanted those folks to have a chance to improve their lives, which is generally done through education and standard of living. Yes, okay. So as Nia, as you just pointed out, uh, health education and welfare grew dramatically during the Johnson administration. First, you get Medicare. I mean, think about think about this, uh, uh, Nia. Before Medicare, okay, there was no health insurance program, okay, guaranteed to the elderly and retired Americans. Yeah, if you get sick, that's just too bad. Okay. Medicaid. And in the 1960s, you're seeing people live longer. Like, yes, you're starting to get medicine that is extending people's lives longer than, say, in the 20s, when this first came up as a question and died out was because well, people mean, are living longer. Think about this. After war, World War One and World War Two, where the United States lost a significant part of its younger population. Okay, life expectancy jumped dramatically in the 1950s and 60s, right? Okay, so, you know, before the Vietnam War, okay, I mean, you have a decade of post-World War II growth, okay, in quality of life changes in the United States, right? You're looking up life expectancy, aren't you? Actually, what I'm looking up is, uh, isn't in the 60s when we get, wide use of penicillin no it's the 40s it's when the we 40s. get wide use of penicillin yes. it's the war where yeah. we we start learning to save lives through the clever use of chemistry yes okay well what is it we don't get the polio vaccine until what the 1950s right right salk so yeah. so then salk. you're again seeing life expectancy and yes. and not just expectancy but also um longer periods where you will be healthy but then longer periods where you are not as healthy yeah because right you don't you don't deteriorate as quickly because yeah. now there are ways to prolong or to prevent the deterioration as quickly yes okay so you get medicare then you get medicaid right I right mean, how are we going to take care of our poor that's right. They get sick too, turns out. Well, and 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 and, and because of you know uh, you know lifestyle variables, right? 
you know, they live in poor neighborhoods, okay, with more crime. Um, they go uh, less amenities, fewer less, amenities, fewer amenities. They have less money to go ahead and buy healthy food. And, you know, and, you know, let's face it, okay, to eat healthy, okay, at times costs more money than to eat poorly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then you get um, the, the sheer cost of going to the doctor. Yes. And you get limited medical facilities in certain communities. Yes. Which is also going to, so, okay. And then, the big, and then the big one, okay. And this is the pivot point uh, uh, in, in our discussion of health education and welfare. Um, LBJ convinced uh, Congress to pass the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965, okay? Now, again, its broad purpose was to get a whole bunch of federal money into communities that had poor public schools, right? But this is another example of cooperative federalism. For you to get that money, okay, <laughs> you had to show that you were desegregating your public schools. And this is a standard feature of cooperative federalism, okay? Federal government creates a program, allocates a whole bunch of money, says to states, local governments, do you want some of this cash? Of course, they're like, yes, we do. And then the feds say, but there are certain strings attached, okay? And that was one of the biggest strings with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, okay? So you get desegregation, according to some scholars, because of this law. It was great that the Supreme Court said that segregation was unconstitutional and Brown versus Board, but when the United States Congress backs that up a decade later with millions of federal dollars, <laughs> yeah, Okay, a whole bunch of states were like, okay, okay, sure, we'll go ahead and, you know, treat our students of color better because they wanted what? Money. Right. Okay, they wanted money. Um, but that, those issues is what led to in 1979. Those are some of the issues that led to, not all of them but some of the issues that led to education being removed from this department and becoming a standalone uh, cabinet department um, uh, during the Carter administration. At that point, health, and health education and welfare becomes health and human services, right? Right, and we see the change from welfare to human services. Yes. And it's a sprawling department, Nia. I mean, it, <laughs> it is, covers all the things. It has a secretary, a deputy secretary, seven assistant or undersecretaries. They have 10 regional offices. So basically, the United States is divided into these 10 regional offices. Each of the regional offices has a director. Okay, with under directors or you know assistant Good directors. Grief. Okay, I work for a guy who works for a guy who works for the secretary of the department. And again, not only 
and I've said this a couple of times, we've both have said this a couple of times during this podcast episode, it's a really good example of cooperative federalism because almost all of uh, health and human services money is passed through the regional offices on the way to what final destination? To the state and local yes. agencies. And I'm assuming that in part that's because distribution of those kinds of services is best done at the state level. Yes. But funding of those kinds of services is best done at the federal Federal level. level. Yes. Right. We take everyone's tax dollars and we divide them out accordingly. And then we give the states a certain amount of money because otherwise, if it was only imagine and maybe I'm wrong. So, Augie, please correct me if I'm wrong. But if Wyoming had to only fund Wyoming's stuff. There would be a lot less stuff in Wyoming because there's a lot fewer people to fund it, or they'd say something like, and your tax bill is $32,000 this year, right? Like it would be outrageously, but what you do is you take the population, the large populations, and you nibble off a little bit from them, and you give it to Wyoming so that the people in Wyoming who need Medicare or Medicaid can get those programs without the state having to come up with an unbelievable amount of money per individual. Is that, am I more or less? You've captured easily two or or three of the variables related to bureaucratic politics and public policy implementation, right? So many of these programs in HHS are redistributive programs. You're basically taxing, okay, Americans, middle-class and upper-class Americans, in redistributing that wealth, okay, to um, the elderly, the retired, poor people, right? Children. Children, people with chronic health conditions, right? So you're redistributing that money. Now, if you did that at the state and local level, the politics just doesn't support that, right? Well, and the finance doesn't support that. It either, right? So, you know, so you've added the money, the budget element to all of this, right? But if you do it at the federal level, okay? um, Tiny little pain for everybody. Yes. Versus massive amount of pain for a few people. People within a particular state. And again, you know, politics in states is definitely local, right? Oh, if you said that my tax bill in Wyoming was $32,000, I would move. Yes. Right. I mean, that's what happens okay. is that then you get flight trying for people trying to say that's too much money. But if yeah, everybody's you, tax bill is let's let's just round it and say everybody's tax bill is a thousand dollars, but it's everybody in the United States and then it all gets distributed across, then it's not so painful for any one individual comparatively. And, 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 and Nia, to your point, think about our discussion of the 2020 census and how some states lost people or their growth was not as great. And we talked about, for instance, you know, California, okay? California has lost, okay, a significant number of people. Yeah, people are getting up and leaving California. (laughs) Okay, and in part, okay, if we are to believe the surveys, okay, of these individuals, many are leaving because of the tax burden, okay, the quality of the services, et cetera. Right. Um, uh, but 
again, you captured so much of why, you know, an agency like HHS can exist and function and deliver essential services, even though, you know, intellectually or theoretically, a lot of Americans don't like these programs until they need this program until they need the programs right? or somebody they love needs the program right that that's that's when people are like oh i think that's a great program well yeah you think that now um but i do think there's an there's an interesting economic question there or rather there's an interesting discussion to be had and it should be fairly stated that redistributed redistribution, redistribution. Thank you. Redistribution, I'm struggling with the word, of wealth is a is a complex political question. Um, It's a very nuanced. There are nuanced arguments to be made on both sides. The folks who think that's a terrible idea have reasons for thinking that's a terrible idea. Right. They're not just. And so I want poor people to starve to death or whatever. That's not how. That's not how that works. And sometimes I think that that they're not that their reasons for saying that's a failure of the overall system right that's a failure of capitalism when we have to redistribute the wealth then capital something's wrong in the system and we need to fix what's wrong with the system instead of fixing the symptom which is unequal or or a lack of parity so so those people actually have an argument there they're not just saying yeah, I don't want to give. I don't want to pay for that. They're also saying, "What's wrong with the system that we have to pay for that, or that we have to?" Or what is the best way? Right. Or how do we do this in the most fair and okay. equitable way across a, a large number of people? Or so there, you know, there is a there is a civil discourse to be had on that. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, in in. And I hate the labels they get placed on the ideas that are part of that debate, right? You know, if you ask questions about, you know, for instance, uh, Medicare, it doesn't mean that you're anti-old people, okay? You might have some fundamental questions that you think need to be addressed. Likewise, just, you know, just because you support Medicaid, okay, doesn't necessarily mean that um, uh, you're a warm-hearted, okay, advocate for the poor. Okay, you might just prefer to go ahead and have the government go ahead and do what others believe should be done by individuals or community organizations. Right. I'll pay somebody else to do that. Yeah, because you don't want to get your hands dirty and you don't want to, you know, spend your <laughs> valuable time. Oh, really? Okay. So. If we have that discussion, and, and I've participated in some of them, I'm just like, guys, let's dial dial back the rhetoric, right? Right. Nobody here wants to see old people or children starve or die in the streets. That's not okay. No one is evil here. People are just trying to think through the problems and are we solving for the right problem? Problem, right? Okay. Because if we're not, let's fix what's actually broken. You know, you know, if we're just focusing on the sim- symptom, is that because we can only address the symptom because the problems 
are so complex and intractable. I mean, and then stop yelling at each other about that. We just have to say that's just a big giant problem that we can't unravel. Or, you know, we're going to nibble around the edge and fix it. So let's go ahead and try something out and see if it works before we go ahead and and have a fundamental redirection. (laughs) Okay. I mean, there's a lot of ways to cut this up. Right. So can we talk a minute about the controversies? Because you and I are sort of discussing that now in vague sense, but there's some actual real controversies. I can I mention there are the tying federal education dollars to desegregation. Yes. Caused some counties in some states. Oh, Virginia, I'm looking at you for their schools to close. Yes. They were like, you know what? We're not going to take your money. We're not going to take your money because we don't want to desegregate the schools. And I have I have real questions about whether the federal government and it's something I soul search and go back and forth on whether the federal government should be in charge of the moral questions like desegregating schools. That's a that's a that's a social issue. It's also a moral issue. Like you can't make people want to do that. They need to need, they need to do that because it's the right thing to do. And they come to that as a decent person. I don't know if you can buy decency. Well, you know, like that's a complicated thing, but then again, if you don't do that, how do you force it on people who wouldn't do it on their own? Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, and it's kind of sort of like, um, and, it, and my students struggle with this. I even, you know, sometimes struggle with it, right? I mean, Nia, just to use an example that's unrelated to desegregation, um, there's the, uh, the, the phenomenon known as the digital divide, right? Where we have parts of the United States, okay, that have limited or no access to the internet, right? And part of me, okay, um, thinks that that is horrendous, right? Okay. Right. So much of life now is is worked through the internet or run through the internet or what have you. And, and, and people in those communities should have access to the opportunities that the internet provides. On right. the other hand, Okay, Um, the private sector has determined, and I can understand their perspective, that it's not cost effective to go ahead and build out the Internet in a community that may have, you know, 75 people. Oh, the um, the property that my parents live on, if they wanted to get they they have to use satellite in order to get cable. Because the cable company said, oh, sure, we'll run a cable out to your place. That'll be $9,000. Yes. Like they literally, and my parents said, well, we don't want to watch cable that much. And so they didn't, <laughs> they didn't get it. But, but that, and, and in fairness to the cable company, that's them digging up and putting down the line and doing the whole thing and maintenancing it and all that other stuff. I mean, I get why they don't, because my parents live way out from town so and they have- just, you know. So we have government programs in place today that provide financial incentives to convince cable companies, okay, right. internet companies to build out those lines, to build out that capacity. 
Now, I know some of some people refer to that as corporate welfare. On the other hand, I'm kind of sort of like, how else would it get done? How else would it get done? And we're basically telling, you know, uh, uh, poor rural people that, yeah, the Internet age isn't for you or you should move or you should. That's the other thing we're saying to them is you should move from this place where you've lived for generations and. And, and yeah. I don't feel comfortable telling poor people in cities that if you don't like the schools, you don't like the safety of your neighborhood, well, move. I don't I don't think we should be telling those people. Yeah, we that. should fix right. We should fix the safety of the schools and the safety. Yeah, of the right. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sort of like, <laughs> how do we do this? Yeah. How do we do this? But one of the most effective ways. And. And I've had students refer to it as, but that's extortion. I'm like, <laughs> you know, yep. Sometimes it, the federal government threatens to break your kneecaps. Okay. In, in other contexts, yes, this would be criminal behavior. <laughs> but since it's being done by the government, and I said, and if we focus on the end, we want desegregated schools, then the end justifies the means. Right. But I said, but we got to be careful with that because that's, that's a slippery slope. That's a yeah, right. That's a very slippery slope to say. Well, I believe that the end justifies the means. Oh, okay, but that's going to get that's going to get hairy quick. Um, also, in your cooperative federalism, it fails when the state says, and we shall fund. I mean, the federal government says we shall fund ninety percent of something, and then they say, well. Now we're going to fund 50% of that, but you're on the hook for the other 50%. Like, that's a bait and switch. I'm just saying, and the government does that sometimes. The government will say for the first five years of something, we will pay X amount. And and it's like one of those um, mortgages where the rate suddenly. Yes. Like those variable rate mortgages where they're like easy for a 1% mortgage. And you're like, yeah, 1% for five years. And then, and then it's 22% interest. And all of a sudden you can't afford the house anymore. Yeah. Well, they do that sometimes, don't they? The federal government. Yeah. What uh, listeners, what Nia is referring to is a a well-known political science, public policy concept referred to as unfunded mandates. Okay. (laughs) Um, and Medicaid is, in the literature, the classic example. I mean, it's always used. When the Medicaid program was created during the Johnson administration, the United States Congress said to the states, <laughs> if you participate in the federal government's Medicaid program, we will give you 90% of the costs. We will fund 90%. That's a lot. Yes, right? And of course, every single state said, okay. Sign me up. If I can get 90, if I can only put in 10 and get nine back. And I end up creating a health program. Right. That makes me popular and beloved and takes care of my citizens Citizens? and does all the things we want it to do. Sign. Where's the piece of paper? Let me sign. But by the time we get to the late 1980s, early 1990s, the federal government share of Medicaid was 50%. And and states began to complain because now the states are in a dilemma, okay? Do they remove it? And upset 
an upset their citizens mm -hmm. and leave some of their citizens ill and dying with no support. Or, or okay, do they pony up? Okay. Right. Do they take money from other things in the state? That's right. To cover that 50, because that 50% is going to come from somewhere. Something yeah. is going to, your roads aren't going to get fixed. Your schools aren't going to get fixed. Your whatever's not going to get fixed because you got to come up with that money. Yeah. Yep. It's a little shady. I'm just saying that's a little shady on the federal government's part. Yes. Um, that's like a loan shark. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's a little shady, but you know, what's even shadier to me is social security. Cause oh. social security feels like a Ponzi scheme. Well, I you mean, have to have bigger generations in order for social security to work the way it's set up and people have stopped having babies. Yes. So unless we start acquiring babies from somewhere else, meaning unless we start having a lot more immigration with people who are having children and having families, that's a real. Yeah, because we know this statistically. Okay. <laughs> right. Demographics are not in our favor here. Yeah. Third and fourth generation Americans aren't having kids. Okay. And at most they're having one or two. Right. Okay? And by the way, the, the current social security system basically needs two and a half Americans to work to fund one person on social security. Right. right. So unless we're going to go the Soylent Green route, <laughs> we're not which i i am not advocating no we're not advocating that then okay. we are then we are in a we are gonna have to see some rearrangements of that program and this all started in the 1980s when um uh, uh the federal government was getting criticized um for using the social security trust fund to on paper balance the federal government's budget right right so eventually okay advocates for you know uh, retirees and senior citizens okay said we need to go ahead and put the social security trust fund okay so that's all the money that workers pay into social security goes into a quote-unquote trust fund we need to put that in a lockbox that can't be used even on paper to balance the federal government's budget. And for our younger listeners, this is during a period in American history where the federal government was actually concerned about balancing the, the federal government's budget. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they've given up on that now. Yeah, they've given up on that, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, they say they want to, but and we can talk about the ramifications of that in a different podcast. Episode. Oh, yeah, that's a whole okay. different. Okay, but nevertheless, when they put the trust fund in a lockbox, then advocates were like, well, let's just remove it from health and human services, okay, because and make it basically an independent agency. And that's what Social Security is, okay? It's an right. independent agency. Um, and this all occurred, finally occurred during the Clinton administration. But again, that's part of Social Security being the third rail of American politics. Because it's its own agency, okay, they don't have to worry about what goes on in HHS, right? Right. On the other hand, 
because it's an independent agency. They're not being overseen by a secretary. They're not. And nobody's nobody's talking about the impending, okay, demographic, okay, nightmare, nightmare <laughs> that Social Security. Okay. Right. It's and it is coming. The reality is it's coming around the world in in most of first world nations. Yes. They're seeing a loss or sorry, rather a drop in birth rate. Um, uh, can there, I there can I mention? More, yeah, there are two more controversies I wanted to touch upon before uh, we talk about prominent HHS secretaries. Uh, Nia, is there one that you want to touch upon? There is my favorite thing ever, which also is a prominent HHS secretary, um, Kathleen Sebelius. Yes. She said, and we shall roll out the Affordable Care Act and it will be wonderful. And you will go to the website and sign up. And people went, I, and they went to the website in such numbers that it crashed instantaneously. And it was up and down and up and down and nobody could figure out how to get their information and whether their information was taken or not. And she kept saying, well, we didn't think this many people would want it, right? And I'm like, are you berserk? We, of course, we knew this number of people would want it. But man, that thing was just, and well, it, it's I mean, one it, of those things where, oh um, <clears throat> I, I, I hear me out on this. What they should have done was hire Ticketmaster. Because <laughs> Ticketmaster can handle 150,000 Bruce Springsteen fans trying to get tickets all in the same two minutes when they go on sale for their city. They can handle it. They should have been hired to do that, to do that rollout instead of, well, we don't know when the site will be back up because that gave people a lot of, well, if you can't get the website right, I don't know that I want you to be my insurer. Yes. I mean, it, it did a lot to damage that that. Um, yeah, listeners, what Nia is referring ACA. to is the um, implementation of the Affordable Care Act's uh, health insurance exchange program. Okay, and and from Nia, I got to be honest with you, from a public administration scholar perspective, the Affordable Care Act had a two-year implementation window. Okay, the law was passed in 2010. Yeah, and they waited till like 20 minutes before it was going to expire. I mean, it was some ridiculous. And, and here's the thing: the assumption about the health and in, health insurance exchange program was that the states would create their own because they wouldn't want right. wouldn't want to rely on the federal government. And it, they didn't. <laughs> half of the states. I think the number was like 25 or 20, 25 or 26 of the states basically was just like, we're not entirely sure we like this program. So we're basically going to go ahead and put it on you all's shoulders. Right. Okay. And the feds were just completely shocked when a whole bunch of Americans were like, okay, I can now get health insurance. Okay. And if I don't meet certain income standards, the federal government will pay for my health insurance. They will subsidize it, right? Right. So history were... history will look back on that and say that was part of part of the problem with political um, polarization was that some of the states that didn't do it were deliberately trying to tank the program. 
Yes. But their people wanted it. Yeah. Like the the leadership in those states was making were making choices that were not in accordance with what the people in those states actually wanted. Yeah. So there will be research in the future that will look back on that and say that was pure politics. That was we don't like Obama, we don't like his Obamacare and we are going to drag our feet even if it hurts our our state's population. And in that situation I really believe that. Okay, and in that situation from a public policy implementation perspective, if you know you got that kind of resistance, then you have to be even better at implementation. And it just and what's amazing is she'd been a governor. Like she knew stuff. She, she was, was a former not... governor of Kansas. Um, she had to know this. I mean, Kansas is one of the most conservative states in the country, right? Right. She had to know there was going to be pushback and, yeah. and there was okay. going to be drama. Okay. But uh, she didn't read the room as well as perhaps. And again, okay, as you pointed out, okay, the federal government is good at some stuff, but not necessarily at other stuff. Okay. And when you're rolling out a program that was fundamentally reforming one of the largest industries in the United States. <laughs> right. Okay. It needed to be really clean and it just wasn't. It wasn't, right? You have to have all your ducks in a row. You have to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, okay? And they didn't, okay? Yeah, they um, they, they did not. And, I'm and just saying, if they had hired Ticketmaster, it would have been better. And then, of course, the most recent controversy. Not that I'm an advocate of Ticketmaster, by the way. Well, well yeah, I mean, because you and I- criminal, can... criminal fees they charge, but we won't oh, even get into that yeah, usury. Is um, somebody who tried to get Bruce Springsteen ticket, <laughs> okay, and was shocked at, okay. Right, because now they have, um, now they have desire pricing, where if it's yes. a super popular location or concert, the yes. ticket prices automatically go up. Yes. Woo. Anyway, anyway, you want to talk about the other one, which is also good. Well, not good, but I mean, it's quite controversial. Well, I mean, and we kind of sort of touched upon this in a previous podcast episode with our colleague, uh, Dr. Judy Twig, but it's the CDC slash Health and Human Services response to COVID-19, right? And again, federalism played a huge role here because the CDC was you know uh, giving uh, Americans advice about how to respond, and some of that advice turned out to be unnecessary, shall we say? Okay, did I say that diplomatically? You did. Okay, there's no real need to wash your groceries. I, 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 well, I, I mean your vegetables, but okay, you know. Okay, but I mean, I, I <laughs> like many Americans, I was coming home from the grocery store. Wiping and, things down, you know, you taking off your gloves and see, throwing you know, them away. Wipes yep. to go, and I was just, and, and now we found out, yeah, COVID doesn't spread that way. Okay, right. All right, fine. Okay, but the CDC's authority is limited, right? Um, and because again, they pushed right up to the edge of that. Yes, of they that did. authority. Okay, going to make everybody wear a mask. We're going to. You know, you know, uh, uh, which, by the way, I don't argue with because I just flew on a plane and I wore a mask and I didn't get a cold. And I'm like, yay, masks work. Right. But but again, this this is one of those situations to where you have a constitutional 
cultural norm in the United States that public health historically is the domain of states. Right. Um, and the CDC has limited authority because of federalism, but it also has limited authority in regards to what Congress has given it in law. And boy, did the CDC, okay? I mean, in both the Trump and Biden administrations, let's be very clear, this, this wasn't a, a, a Democrat versus Republican thing. Oh, no, this was, this was, this was panic that turned into, oh, my gosh, do you remember, who was it? Who was it who, when Reagan was shot, he's Hague, yes. General Hague, who said, don't worry, I'm in charge here. Yes. And, and like the rest of the government, we, you know, that's not how that works, right? Like we yeah. have a, yeah. we have the House Speaker of the House, we have the pro tem with Vice yeah. President, Speaker yeah. of the House, the pro tem. Like we have an order to things. And Al Hague was like, no, no, I got this. Yeah. Okay. I'm in charge. It's fine. Yeah. Right. He's the Secretary <laughs> of State. Okay. And we're like, what's the Secretary of State doing responding to the president being shot? Right. I mean, the, you know, and likewise, right? You know, it's panic. Okay. It's what happens when there's panic, and yeah. there's that moment yeah. of somebody needs to step up and take. You know, you had you know, and take control. You had President Trump, who was you know, press conferences says, "Oh yeah, the CDC is going to take care of it," and of course, a whole bunch of us are like, "Really? Okay." <laughs> do they have the authority to do that? Okay, and then after you know, Trump gets roasted for you know two two and a half years, Biden comes into office. And the next thing you know, his CDC is like, you know, you know, we have an eviction moratorium. We're like, wait, you have the power to do that? <laughs> the power to do that? Well, you know, hey, Trump did it. We're like, oh, so now we're using <laughs> Trump. That's what I used to say when I was a kid. Right. You know, hey, Joy. My friend did it. My yeah, sister Joy did it. Or gets away with this. Why can't I? Right. That never worked then. It doesn't work now, right? Oh, oh my goodness. But you know, we've had some really, we've had some great secretaries that we've had some, some pretty fabulous, and then we've had some secretaries where I'm like, oh, I'm slightly embarrassed for you. I mentioned Kathleen Sebelius not because I think she was a bad um secretary but because that rollout was under her and the buck stops with her as janet reno said about waco the buck stops with me i'm she wasn't at she wasn't in texas when that happened but, but she, she was the ultimately she was ultimately responsible for the outcome yeah and um attorney general and guess what the agencies right. that botched the waco raid okay fall were under her. her yeah fall under her purview right and so Kathleen Sebelius gets, you know, that she will be forever remembered as, hey, didn't you kind of screw up the ACA implementation? Yes. But, you know, I did all these other things in my career and, and did really well. Just Yes. But uh, uh, the, the, fir uh, uh, the one who was the, the, the first one who was appointed by LBJ, uh, again, this is reflecting, you know, my desire for bipartisanship and being a moderate. But John Gardner um, was LBJ's um, health, uh, education, and welfare um, secretary, um, and um, he was the only Republican in the Johnson administration. Um, but he had a, he had a second career. He had, uh, uh, he created Common Cause, which is a public 
uh, public interest group. Okay. He had a very strong moral streak because didn't he? Didn't yeah, he, he resign? Yeah, he uh, he resigned uh, 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 to oppose uh, the Johnson administration's escalate escalation of our involvement in Vietnam. Um, um, another one with a strong, if you will, moral backbone, Elliot Richardson. Oh, which you and Newman waxed poetic about. Yes, okay. Um, and again, different era. I mean, because Elliot Richardson, in addition to being uh, Secretary of Eight, uh, Health, Education and Welfare, uh, uh, was then uh, uh, became um, the Attorney General of the United States. Um, and that's when, you know, Nixon said, you must fire the uh, special prosecutor uh, investigating. Oh, that's right. And he resigned. And, and Richardson said, I refuse. And, the, and Nixon said, I expect your resignation. And Elliot Richardson's like, you got it, Mr. President. <laughs> Here it is on a napkin. Bye. Uh, but you had others. Um, uh, uh, for somebody from the state of Pennsylvania, uh, Richard Schweiker. Um, he was a former Pennsylvania senator, um, another moderate Republican. Donna Shalala. She was President Clinton's um, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, she rather controversially was one of the most public ardent supporters of President Clinton during the Paula Jones, Monica Lewinsky scandal. I remember that. I remember yes. her sort of support of him, her very public support of him. She, she left, a, I don't remember what she left to do. Oh, she became uh, the president of the University of Miami. Ah. Yes. Oh, you know what? That's a thing, isn't it? Leaving to become the president of something. Um, as we are recording this, Ben Sass he is, is uh, leaving to become the president of a university, isn't he? Yes, uh, Ben Sass, uh, as we are recording, is still one of the senators, uh, U.S. senators from the state of Nebraska, but he has already announced his intention that uh, if the board of trustees in the state of Florida uh, approve, um, he's going to become the president of the University of Florida. Yep. So going on to be university presidents, I'm just saying that's an interesting uh, career route Who's to that in? to that position. Yeah. And that also tells folks that we we're recording these episodes a few weeks early. Um, and we're doing that in in part because we're also doing some in the news things on the side that you'll see as they come out. Um, you know, but who, can you we know who, you know who else? Um Mitch Daniels, who was uh, a budget official for Bush 43, became the governor of Indiana and um, is currently the president of Purdue University. <laughs> and I think this is his last year. I think he's already announced he is retiring from public service at the end of this year. Anyways, I digress. Uh, being a president of a university is a tough job. It's a, oh, it's, a, hey. it's hurting cats in a whole, I mean, a it, whole different it, way. Increasingly, universities are not just about education. Some would argue they're hardly nope. about education. Right. Some would argue that at that point you're a CEO. It's yeah, a, it's a, a corporation. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Can we can we mention uh, one more? Yes. Um, 
which is Tommy Thompson. Yes. First of all, I love that. I love that somebody named their child Tommy Thompson. <laughs> Tom Tom. Tom Tom. Um, he he worked for Bush, right? Bush forty three. Yes, he did. Yep. Former governor, uh, Republican governor of Wisconsin. Um, it was his state's welfare reform program that became the model of welfare reform that was enacted during the Clinton administration. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he um, tried it out on the state and then went to the federal level. That's actually not a terrible idea. Well, I mean, that's one of the justifications, by the way, for federalism. Uh, states, according to uh, the infamous quote from former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, states are the laboratories of democracy. I was about to say, isn't there something about they're the lab <laughs> They're the laboratory of something. Ah, oh, that—that's what it is. Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. So where we are now, HHS is. Would you say that it's a relatively? I would say that it is a relatively powerful department. Yes. In that, yes. yeah. You see something. Well, as the CDC shows, right? It can affect every single individual in the nation and generate lots and lots and lots of lawsuits and lots of controversy. It is one of. Uh, the the rare federal government uh, departments that can affect Americans from birth to death. I mean, think oh, that's it. true. Cradle to grave. Yeah, cradle to it, grave. It gets you the whole way through. Okay, and and um, you can't say that about a lot of other um, uh, cabinet departments, but that one you can say. And I doubt this is one that you could easily get rid of. Oh. <laughs> the entrenchment here, you know how sometimes some politicians say, and when I'm president, I'm going to get rid of the following departments. I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody list HHS, but if they have, boy, that would be that would be a thing that would not go over well with the American public. Well, I mean, think about as it. much as we like to argue about the CDC or the Obamacare or whatever. Else, we also we also as a fundamental part of the fabric of the nation now think of oh these things as fundamental rights i mean th think about this nia the number of parents who would be just up in arms if you got rid of um head start right i mean um and and, and i can easily feed my daughter breakfast every morning but the fact that her school has a head start program I basically know that if I have a difficult time waking her up to get her to the bus, that when she gets to school, she will eat something. Right. Okay. Well, and Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, what are we just, we're going to say to our old folks and our poor folks, no medicine for you. Yes. Like, we're not going to do that as a nation. Not, not now that we've had it for a while. It's one of those things that once it becomes entrenched. That's institutionalism. Okay. That's, that's the public policy, if you will, perspective known as institutionalism. We created an institution for a particular problem, but once it gets created, then it shapes the behavior and expectations of multiple generations of Americans. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. right. I know there are people who are like, away with the CDC, but they don't really mean that. No. Because right? there's a whole bunch of things that they want the CDC to do. All they I just know don't is, want overreach. And, and, and 
Nia, you've heard me say this both on recording and you know when we've discussed uh, outside of recordings. I've been somewhat critical of how the CDC responded to COVID-19. On the other hand, the next time there is an Ebola-like plague, okay? I want the CDC on it. Yeah, oh my goodness, do I ever, <laughs> right? Yeah, okay. here, let me make room for you at the airport. I, yeah, <laughs> I want you to fly in and fix it. Oh my, well, on that happy Ebola note, we're gonna go and uh, we'll, be be, we'll be back next week to talk about the next department. All right, sounds good, Nia, thank you. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.